We are going to continue our series this morning on the book of Job. If you turn to Job 21, that's where we're going to be this morning. As we have our time of review, though, just to kind of bring ourselves up to speed, and I know maybe for some of you, we won't be able to bring you up to speed enough, but we'll give you something here. Uh, last week, we began considering this next series of speeches between Job and his three friends. There was a first series of speeches after Job was, was um, uh, allowed to be tried. God allowed Satan to, to go after him and, and really destroy everything about his life except taking his life. Um, he has lost his health. He's lost everything else. Um, his, his wife is with him, but, but she has kind of, um, how do I say it, uh, all of that's, that's gone on has gotten the best of her, and she just can't continue dealing with it anymore. And so Job is pretty much alone until these three friends come. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about, that, about them in a minute. But we're going to be building on these previous conversations. We saw that Job's friends were not happy with how he had responded to their advice and their view of God in dealing with him. They weren't happy with either one of those things. Their attitude became very personal with Job. And so just to encapsulate what we saw last week, as far as how Job's friends got personal with him, Eliphaz basically said, Job is an empty-headed, sinful deceiver with no respect for God. Those are uplifting words, right? Uh, Bildad, Job needs to stop talking and be wise. Is God obligated to make an exception for Job? It's interesting, isn't it? Here's, here's the way life goes. Here's, here's what, how God works. Is he supposed to like make some special provision for you? And then Zophar said this, and, and again, these are encapsulations, but Job is an arrogant, sinful hypocrite. His words have greatly troubled me. So we can see that as they are approaching him, they're, they're not happy. They're bothered. And they're upset, and they feel like they have to not only defend themselves, but defend their view, okay? Um, let's briefly consider how Job actually responded to these personal attacks. And part of that is going to be in this chapter that we're not going to spend a lot of time on this morning, but we're going to look at uh, Job 16, 19, and 21, just to see how Job responds back to them. Verses 2 through 5 in, in chapter 16. I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. And so he finally gets it out. <laughs> you guys are terrible. Shall words of wind have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? I also could speak as you do. If your soul were in my soul's place, I would heap up, I could heap up words against you and shake my head at you. But I would strengthen you with my mouth, and the comfort of my lips would relieve your grief. See, they had not put themselves in Job's situation. But what Job is saying is, if this were reversed, guys, I would be speaking a lot differently to you. My words would be the opposite of what your words are right now. And then in chapter 21, he says, How long will you torment my soul and break me in pieces with words? Sticks and stones will break my bones and words will never hurt me. That's uh, not what Job says. These ten times you have reproached me, you are not ashamed 
that you have wronged me. So Job is not shrinking back. How could he? He has, he has no place else to go. His back is completely, totally against the wall. He has no way of retreating. And so he has to respond, and I believe appropriately, but strongly, right? You see, each friend defended the established religious beliefs of the day, which said that wicked people live miserable lives and die early. That's what they said last week. We have been using the term wicked fairly often, and I think it's good for us to refresh our understanding of what that actually means. You probably have a good idea, but there's, there's some resources that we can see uh, that, that, we can, that we can incorporate into, into what we're um, uh, looking at here. Uh, the wicked, morally very bad. Pretty simple. Violence and crime against civil law. And that comes one of the lexicons that we use. And then morally wrong and actively bad person. That's the Strong's Hebrew Concordance. So when you get this idea, it doesn't mean that there isn't a spiritual component to it. But wickedness is that practice of wrongdoing. Okay? But when we look at the scriptures as a whole now, there's a family of Hebrew words, and actually I should say more specifically Job. I think it carries over into Scripture. But there's a family of Hebrew words which share the same root and vary only slightly in meaning. You can understand that, right? There's, there's different words used. They're pretty much the same word, but in the Hebrew, a slightly different lettering or, or pronunciation or whatever, but they all carry roughly the same thing. They appear dozens of times in Job. I think it's like 60 or more. All right. They collectively represent wicked, wickedness, or wickedly. They collectively mean a person or action that is morally wrong, harmful, or evil, which obviously violates and opposes God's standard of righteousness. The wicked person actively, and this is very important, actively and deliberately lives this way and is hostile toward God. All right, so that's not just a, a study of the words themselves, but also even how they're used in the book of Job. So what I want us to do now is just uh, work through the chapter here, read through it, get it in our minds, and then we'll, we'll take it into different chunks, different sections. So if you are there at Job chapter 21, I'm going to read it for you. You can see that it's on page 451 if you need one of our pew Bibles. And it says this. Then Job answered and said, Listen carefully to my speech and let this be your consolation. Bear with me that I may speak, and after I have spoken, keep mocking. As for me, is my complaint against man? And if it were, why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be astonished. Put your hand over your mouth. Even when I remember I am terrified and trembling takes hold of my flesh. Why do the wicked live and become old? Yes, become mighty in power? Their descendants are established with them in their sight, and their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear. Neither is the rod of God upon them. Their bull breeds without failure, their cow calves without miscarriage. They send forth their little ones like a flock, and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and harp and rejoice to the sound of the flute. They spend their days in wealth, and in a moment go down to the grave. 
And yet they say to God, depart from us, for we do not desire the knowledge of your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we have if we pray to him? Indeed, their prosperity is not in their hand. The counsel of the wicked is far from me. Let me just pause here for a second. That mirrors the psalm that we read this morning, right? Okay, just kind of keep that in mind. Verse 17, how often is the lamp of the wicked put out? How often does their destruction come upon them? The sorrows of God distributes in his anger. They are like straw before the wind and like chaff from a storm carries away. They say, God lays up one's iniquity for his children. Let him recompense him that he may know it. Let his eyes see his destruction and let him drink of the wrath of the Almighty. For what does he care about his household after him when the number of his months is cut in half? Can anyone teach God knowledge since he judges those who are on high? One dies in his full strength, being wholly at ease and secure. His pails are full of milk and the marrow of his bones is moist. Another man dies in the bitterness of his soul, never having eaten with pleasure. They lie down alike in the dust and worms cover them. Look, I know your thoughts and the schemes with which you would wrong me. Job now speaking to his friends, right? For you say, where is the house of the prince? And where is the tent, the dwelling place of the wicked? Have you not asked those who travel the road? Or do you not know their signs? For the wicked are reserved for the day of doom. They shall be brought out on the day of wrath. Who, condem who condemns his way to his face? And who repays him for what he has done? Yet you, he shall be brought to the grave and a vigil kept over the tomb. The clods of the valley shall be sweet to him. Everyone shall follow him as countless have gone before him. How then can you comfort me with empty words since falsehood remains in your answers? We have a little bit done pack here this morning, but I think as we follow through with this, you'll, you'll be able to see this. And if you are here last week, you'll be able to correlate this with some of the things that Job's friends were laying at him uh, uh, in, in the previous chapters. So we start off with this idea from Job that the wicked may prosper. They say the wicked don't, right? And so as we kind of uh, work down through this, the first verse we're going to look at is verse 7. Why do the wicked live and become old? Yes, become mighty in power. He's not asking if they do that. He's asking why they do that. So Job pushes back on their claim that the wicked lead miserable, short lives because they're racked with guilt and suffer God's judgment. Right? That's, that's the conclusion of Job's friends. Job, in essence, asked, what world are you living in? <laughs> right? I sure do not see what you say you have observed about people. I don't see it. How did Job's friends describe the life of the wicked? I want to go back and look a little more specifically at that, remind ourselves at what world they were looking at. They live in constant fear. Again, talking about the wicked. We've already defined who they are, and this is Job's friends saying this. They're overcome by troubles and sorrow. They're destroyed by disease. Their success is short-lived. Like even if they're doing well, eh, it's not going to last. They will not benefit from all of their efforts. Remember that very graphic um, 
picture that Job, or, or that, that uh, I, I can't remember which friend it was, frankly, but where he was, I think it was uh, Bildad, where he was saying they try to enjoy life, in essence, like food, and they roll around their mouth and they savor it, but when they try to swallow it down, it just comes back up again. A terrible punishment awaits them, and no one will remember them. That's what, he, that's what the going philosophy of that day said. Okay. So how does Job say that they prosper? In what ways are they successful? I, I call this Job's dose of reality about the wicked. Because <laughs> that's really what he's giving his friends. First off, they see their kids grow and get established. In our day, based upon how he described his, his children, the, the children of the wicked, it would be like this. Our kids have a good childhood, right? They're on the soccer team, and they, they um, do other activities, and they, they succeed even in their childhood pursuits. They grow up. They go off to college. They get their degree. They find a good job. They get married. And they established their own household with their own kids. And the point is, these wicked people, Job is saying, they see that. They're not cut off. They do not fear for their household. In other words, unbelievers aren't living in constant fear. They feel secure. Nor do they experience God's immediate judgment. That's pretty much self-explanatory, right? They are financially successful. When he was talking about cattle in here, cattle represent, represented wealth, all right? Um, even in our day, we know that the costliest animals to raise are cattle, right? Uh, the other ones are a little easier. Pigs, whatever you throw at them, they eat chicken, same thing, you know, and, and they're, they're pretty easy to maintain. Cattle, not so much. But yet, that's kind of the, the prized animal. They're also obviously able to do a lot more work than these other ones. You don't see pigs, you know, plowing with the farmer, right? So anyway, so the picture here of successful breeding stands for prosperity. That's the idea. Their children are carefree. They don't carry burdens or concerns about life. They aren't faced with hunger or other types of insecurities. The, again, the word picture there is, is they're just frolicking around like lambs, right? Carefree. They have a full and enjoyable life. And this one is a little bit hard to see in the translation that we have, but their death is quick and painless. That's the idea there of verse 13. Let me just touch on that real quick because it says, they spend their days in their wealth and in a moment go down to the grave. That's the idea. Is that, is that they live a nice full life and then their life is done and that's it. All right? This is not the same picture that Job's friends were giving about the wicked. And by the way, what was part of their message? Job, this is what your life was, and now look at you. So they're partially taking Job's present circumstances and 
bringing their own belief system in and kind of putting them together. And that's what they're doing against Job. So what is Job's point of describing both the prosperity and the rebellion of wicked people? We need to be careful here. Job isn't saying the wicked never suffer or have problems. Job isn't contrasting the end of life of the godly and the wicked here. What he's doing is he's refuting this system that we've been talking about that his friends are defending. The idea that we should describe them today, unsaved people, uh, as, as uh, living uh, hard, hard, depressing lives under God's judgment, and then God cuts them off uh, after living a short life with the same judgment. That, that's what they're talking about. But that's not what he's saying. He's refuting that. That is not what happens in general to people. Can you imagine trying to figure out statistically, um, and, oh, sorry, trying to prove statistically that today, right now, wicked people lead worse lives and shorter lives, much shorter lives than Christians? You see where we're going? So that's what Job is basically saying. But then we take a look and see, what is this attitude that the wicked have toward God? And we see in Job 21, verses 14 through 16, this. I just want to remind you of these verses. Yet they say to God. In other words, here's their state in life. Here's what's happening with them. Depart from us, for we do not desire the knowledge of your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we have if we pray to him? Indeed, their prosperity is not in their hand, the counsel of the wicked is far from me. In other words, Job is distancing himself from that kind of thinking. They don't want anything to do with God on his terms. They don't respect the Lord or recognize his authority. They don't see any benefit in worshiping him. What's in it for me? Right? That's, that's what they're asking. I'm doing just fine. The scriptures tell us why unsaved people think the way they do, and I want to give you a few of those scriptures this morning. 1 Corinthians 2.14 But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerning. Let me tell you something. One of the worst experiences you can have as a follower of Christ is to tell somebody how much God loves them through Christ and what he's done for you and have them literally laugh in your face. It is not pleasant. But they laugh in God's face. Romans 8, 5 through 7. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Go figure. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity or against God. It's an enemy of God. For it does not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So in other words, it's actually willful. But in one sense, they don't even have the will not to do that. And then Jesus, as he was talking to Nicodemus, said this. 
That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And then lastly, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and 23. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, that being saved isn't that salvation is a process. It means that we haven't fully realized it yet. Okay? And then he goes on. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block. Right? They trip over that. And to the Greeks, foolishness. Paul helps us make sense of the mindset of an unbeliever. And obviously we have Christ's words too. The message of Christ is foolishness to the unsaved person. We hear that echoed in what Job said about the wicked. Uh, God, we have no desire to know you or your ways. Right? So as we continue down this road then of the wicked prospering, Job touches on one of the most damaging misunderstandings that Christian, Christians can have about those who reject the Lord. Many believe that those who reject the Lord are living miserable lives and experience no happiness. It simply isn't true. The unbeliever can experience fulfillment and satisfaction in life in many legitimate and even noble ways. We struggle to understand that because when God brings a sinner to spiritual life, the Holy Spirit has shown us the terrible condition that we were in under God's judgment. We can't now, we can't fathom the idea of not having a relationship with the Lord because of what he's done for us. We love him because he first loved us. But we need to understand something here. The gospel is not a call away from an unhappy, unfulfilling, meaningless life of sin and to a meaningful, trouble-free filled, trouble-free life filled with spiritual and emotional joy. Now, these things may be a part of someone's life experience because someone might be actually uh, experiencing the consequences of sin and say, wait a minute, uh, this is not all it's cracked up to be. We don't know what God's going to use to draw people to himself, right? To be forgiven and be made right with the Lord is what it's really all about. The good news of, Je of Jesus Christ is a call to lose this life of sin and rebellion by receiving forgiveness through God's grace. To put it in what we might call social media terms, a person that follows Christ unfollows all false ways men, that men have in coming to God. Now, is Job saying that only... I'm kind of switching back here to one of the other things that he talked about. So we're off that subject a little bit. Is Job saying that only the evil, rebellious people prosper? Let's say this another way. If someone is successful in life, does that automatically mean they're evil? Right? Because let's face it, sometimes we have a tendency to think that way. Oh, those people are rich. They must be sinners. <laughs> The answer to both those is absolutely not. But again, looking at this a different way, slightly different angle. 
is Job asserting that all who reject God live a happy and carefree life. Again, no, that's not the case. Job's point is that reality crushes the notion that bad things happen to bad people, that wicked people experience severe consequences, and God's immediate judgment is on their life. I didn't say that they're not going to be judged. I said his immediate judgment. So in summary of all this, plenty of wicked people live well. So the system is messed up. We're talking about the system that the friends are pushing. It's wrong. It does not work when applied to real life. And that's what Job is trying to help them understand. So the wicked quite possibly will prosper. And the wicked may live a long life. Again, we have the opinion of Job's friends and then we have what Job says to them. But what do they say about this? Eliphaz says, the wicked man writhes with pain all of his days. That doesn't sound very pleasant. Bildad says, tears frighten him on every side. His strength is starved and destruction is ready at his side. And then Zophar says, the triumphing of the wicked is short and the joy of the hypocrite is but for a moment. Wow. So how does Job respond to their opinions? In verses 17 18, he says this, How often is the lamp of the wicked put out? How often does their destruction come upon them? The sorrows of God distributes in his anger. They're like straw before the wind and chaff that a storm carries away. Now, Job basically begins by questioning their facts and figures, right? You know, okay, you guys say you had these stats. Are they true? So Job really is one of the earliest fact checkers, all right? A good kind of fact checker. And let's also remind ourselves of something that we, we uh, glean from Solomon. There's nothing new under the sun here, right? So he asks, how often do the things that you are describing really take place? In verses 17 and 18, compare the life of the wicked, compares the life of the wicked with the threshing of grain. Um, it's actually a continuation of Job's rhetorical question. Verse 18 should kind of read more like this. Are they blown away like straw or chaff? And just to remind us of what that looks like, first in ancient times and even today, people beat the grain heads out and some of that chaff, some of that stuff you don't want to eat, the husk and some of the things from the stem is going to fall in with the seeds. And so that gets tossed in some way and then the wind blows the lighter chaff away. And that's the picture that Job is talking about here, okay? This, this isn't what happens. This is what you say happens, but this is not what happens. Is this really the case is what he's asking. Do, do they just, are they judged and, and life is terrible and then they're done? Job's series of questions all ask this. If what you are saying is true, wouldn't this misery and swift justice be obvious? Wouldn't we be able to see this all around us? And yet we know even from other scriptures, we don't see that. I'm talking like scripture says we're not going to see that. So let's move on to the next part here in Job 21, verses 19 through 21. They say, 
All right, so this is the system. God lays up one's iniquity for his children. Now, the quote has stopped here. Job starts speaking again, okay? It's not necessarily easy to see that in the text. Let him recompense him that he may know it. Let, him, let his eyes see his destruction. Let him drink of the wrath of the Almighty. For what does he care about his household after him when the number of his months is cut in half? Job seems to be quoting what I might even call a proverb, you know, some pithy saying from the system that God will cause the children of the wicked to bear the punishment of their children's actions, I mean, of their parents' actions. It's almost like it's a warning, right? But Job says, fine, let it happen. Let the children suffer for the consequences of the previous generation. They don't care. The threat of, of their children bearing the consequences will not change how they live. They won't care in this life, and they certainly won't care when they're dead. That's what Job says. Why? Because the wicked are wicked, <laughs> and they will do what they want. He goes on. The next several verses through 26. Can anyone teach God knowledge? Since he judges those on high, one dies in his full strength, being wholly at ease and secure. His pails are full of milk and the marrow of his bones is moist. Another man dies in the bitterness of his soul, never having eaten with pleasure. They, die, they lie down alike in the dust and worms cover them. Job ends this section by becoming almost philosophical. You can kind of feel that, right? He tells his friends through a question that they're trying to teach God how to deal with mankind. That's really what they're doing. No, 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 no. This is how God works, right? Immature or rebellious Christians are capable of thinking this way, but no one directs the God of the Bible. Can we remind ourselves of what Paul told the Romans in chapter 11, verses 33 through 36? Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? By the way, they were accusing Job of this. Oh, did God give you some secret information? Yet they're the ones that are saying, thus saith the Lord, falsely. Right? For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given to him that it should be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom... We're talking about the Lord. Be glory forever. Amen. What's interesting here is that Job quotes both Isaiah, I'm sorry, Paul quotes both Isaiah and Job. He quotes from the book of Job here. So this is the way of man-made religion because every man-made religion is a form of idolatry. What is idolatry? Making a God of our choosing. So when we're basically saying this is how God acts, when he doesn't act that way, we're forming our own God. So let's go back to this passage because Job is, is um, comparing two people. One dies full of strength. The other dies and he's a bitterness of soul, never eaten with any pleasure, Right? So the first dies peacefully after a full life. He died with no worries and having plenty up to the end. That's what this passage is telling us. 
The second dies experiencing only a very hard life without any joy. But Job points out the end is the same. They both still die, they're both buried, and they both decay. The next thing that we see in the passage here is that the wicked are respected. All right? So the wicked, they, they can, they can uh, uh, be prosperous. They're not necessarily cut off early in life. They, they can live a nice long life. And the, the wicked are respected. We're going to go through just a series of slides here to help us with this. In verse 28, the passage says, Where is the place of the wicked? Right? It's, 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 it's this setup question. And he talks about something interesting. He says, travelers observe their memorials. Verse 28, I just want you to see this again. For you say, where is the house of the prince? Where is the tent, where is, is the, tent the dwelling place of the wicked? Uh, have you, and I guess that's verse, yeah, that's verse 29, sorry. Have you not asked those who travel the road? And I forgot to mention that question, where is the place of the wicked? That's now his friends asking that. In other words, hey, come on, you tell me, where have they ended up? Meaning, we're right about this. So, so you describe to me, you tell me, what is the end of these people? Because we know that they're cut off quickly. We know that God's justice and God's judgment, it's meted out immediately. Once they're off the path, man, God acts. And they're done. And, and, and just before that, they suffer really badly. So he talks about this idea of, of these signs, or the, what's really a memorial. These were monuments of some kind that conveyed the greatness of the person. All right? Um, if you think about it this way, it was like the pyramids on a really small scale. Because <laughs> that's what those are, right? The pyramid was a monument to who was buried underneath it. Did not do them a lot of good, but apparently they enjoyed building it, but... That's where it is. Now, do we do the same thing? I'll give you one example. Thomas Jefferson has a memorial that's in Washington. He also has his homestead that's been preserved, right? Thomas Jefferson is considered one of the greatest Americans to have ever lived. Yet he was a deist. Deism holds that God created everything but doesn't get involved in any way. And I have to give a picture of this because we have younger people here who don't know what this means. That's not a slam. That's just where you're at in life. It's kind of like when we, when we used to wind a clock, right? God just winds the clock of the universe, sets it down, and walks away. That's what deism says. So the deist would be completely against God the Son coming and invading our world and providing a way of salvation. Because you see, we just have to reason this life out. That's what the deist believes. Does that sound like someone who has submitted to the ways of the Lord? Thomas Jefferson even created his own version of the Bible by cutting out everything he disagreed with. He published it. I'm not sure how thick or thin it was, but based upon what we're hearing here, there would have been a lot of cutting. So here's the point. We do the same thing. I'm not saying that 
on the scale of men, on the scale of our nation, that Thomas Jefferson, Jefferson wasn't a good man from that regard. But he, he was no friend of God's. Look at what verse 31 says. The wicked are not rebuked by others. The wicked are not rebuked by others. In other words, there's, there's, and, and we'll talk this a little bit more, there, there's not people that are going against them. Uh, verse 31 also says, no one seeks revenge against the wicked. Why not? Because they're rich and powerful. <laughs> people tend to like and follow them, just like today. Right? Am I wrong? There's people that are completely, totally living against God, have millions of followers. People pay to see them. People pay to hear their philosophy, whether it's in speech or in song. Or people are sometimes afraid of the consequences of opposing them. I, I'm not trying to bring in like geopolitics here, okay, but um, there was a, and I can't remember his first name, his last name was Navalny, um, was, he opposed Putin, and he, he tried to run against him as president of Russia. Well, Mr. Navalny um, uh, ended up dead in prison a few days ago. And when the family asked for his body, it disappeared. That's, that's true stuff. That's, that's not conspiracy theory stuff. On top of that, an Orthodox Russian priest wanted to give him a funeral and they arrested him. So, nothing to see here, folks. Keep moving. Nothing to see. What's the point? They're not criticizing the powerful. They're not criticizing the, the people who, who are successful because of what might happen to them. And we see how influential the wicked can be every day. The wicked are mourned. Again, when some star or some political figure or anybody else or anything else, when, 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 when they die, boy, there's, there's stuff that comes across social media. There's things that are put up uh, by news organizations, all different types of things. Since they are considered great, people mourn at their death. And then lastly, others will take the same course as him. Again, we see this today. People follow the pattern set by others who are living immoral lives opposed to God. We see it all the time. So what can we take away from this? Job completely dismantled the arguments of his friends, primarily because they simply do not stand up to reality. Let's bring back to mind that the wicked are those who reject God, choosing instead to live by a standard of their own making. So Job ends this passage, ends his speech, his argument back to them with this. How then can you comfort me with empty words since falsehood remains in your answers? Job asks, how are these wrong and meaningless words supposed to bring me comfort? The ESV actually 
captures the stronger emphasis in the Hebrew of this word vain or meaningless. And it says this, How then will you comfort me with empty nothings? <laughs> Sometimes we say a whole lot of nothing, right? You know, that's, that's, that's the idea here. I have nothing at all to offer you. <laughs> it, it's, it's a very absolute statement. So nothing that they have said has helped him at all in any way. It's been a complete and total failure. There's a lesson here. We must speak what is whole truth to people. Now, I'm not saying that everything that we say has to contain all of the facts. It has to be factual. It has to be correct. It has to be right according to God's word. But first off, we don't know everything. And even if we knew a whole bunch of something, it's not always right to tell them everything that we know, right? You know what I mean? So, so you know, we're not, we're not changing that. But we cannot have shades of false human philosophy in what we say to people and how we minister to them and what advice we might give or whatever it might be. It's interesting, the English language also struggles to carry over the emphasis of the word falsehood. Job is accusing his friends of making up lies with the intent of hurting him. They're not just saying factually wrong things. Their wrong is meant to harm him. It's, it's malicious. And that's the idea behind this falsehood, right? It, we're not talking about a little kid trying to get out of being punished and telling a lie. We're talking about a friend speaking lies about another friend, kind of, so that these other friends turn on this supposed friend. You see what I mean? It's malicious. Job refers to, to this in a verse that I intentionally overlooked. In verse 27, it says this, Now I know your thoughts and the schemes which you would wrong, with which you would wrong me. So I want to bring us back into bring back into our thinking that this exchange between Job and his friends probably took place in less than three hours. In other words, if you just read through this in a relatively moderate fashion, if you almost were to just take these characters and then one speaks and then Job talks back and then another one speaks and then Job responds to him and you just keep on going with it, that reading would probably take you roughly three hours. So this is not a super long time. In other words, these things are in these people's hearts. Okay? It's not like they, they left for a week and thought about this and then came back and went after Job again. Another reason why I say this is because these men had proposed at least a month in advance that they were going to come and encourage their friend. <laughs> so things changed once they got on the ground, didn't it, right? But once Job started saying what was nonsense to them, that a righteous man would suffer like Job, their hearts turned against him and their words turned ugly. 
Now, I don't want to oversimplify this as we kind of, you know, summarize what we're talking about here, but it's an important takeaway that, that we have to have here. No matter what our circumstances, and it could be being on the receiving end of some terrible criticism, right? Or it could be on the other side of things where we're trying to um, help somebody else out. We're trying to encourage them. We need to see life through the truth of God's word. Because our circumstances can deceive us. And even, obviously, what people are saying around us sometimes are built to harm us or deceive us or both. And we also want to be careful that as we are speaking, as we are living, that it is according to God's word. We don't want things to taint our message, right? And then just one last thing. When we're talking about witnessing, telling other people about Jesus, okay? Um, one thing we need to understand is, obviously, it, it is all of God. He's the one who makes people alive. We can't do that. But we are very much supposed to be telling them about who this life giver is. When we're doing that, based upon what we've seen here, we need to understand they, they don't have a mind in and of themselves to like what we're saying. It's completely foreign to them. That doesn't mean that they're stupid. It means that they're not alive. Okay, so, so that's one thing. The other thing is this. We can't try to negotiate and, and um, spin things so that somehow in our assumption of their lives, they're missing something. Now, I'm not saying that if, if someone uses a phrase like, you know, everybody has a God-sized hole in their heart, right? But digging a little deeper on that, the idea is you have something that, that is, is not fulfilled. You need to fulfill this. Folks, the natural man doesn't get it. They are very fulfilled in what they're doing. Go, go stick your microphone in, in Bill Gates's face and say, hey, how's life? It's terrible. It's terrible. I, my life is full of disease. I don't know if he's sick or not, but I'm just saying. And I'm tormented all the time with the guilt of being so rich and smart. It pains me to get on and off of my yacht. Is terrible. But we're chuckling. Now go to your neighbor. Stick the microphone in their face. Hey, what's missing in your life? Well, I was fishing the other day and I, I had a big one on that got off. You know, I was fishing off of my boat that my large SUV towed. On Sunday morning. <laughs> What's the point? They can fill their lives with all kinds of things that fulfill them. In their heart, whether they really want to say it or not, no matter how religious they might be, what they're saying is, I don't need God on his terms. I'm good. 
What advantage is it? If you want to talk from a human perspective, being a follower of Christ is absolutely zero advantage. I mean, seriously. How to get ahead? Lose everything. That's what God calls us to do. How do I get ahead? Give up all for somebody else. But they don't understand, and hopefully we do, that the reason why we give this life up is because he's given us the next. And we cannot imagine what is waiting for us. Now, it's not just where we're going and what we're going to experience. It's also saying, I'm no longer going to live for myself because you have helped me understand that this really isn't working. That ultimately, it really does not fulfill who and what I need, which is to be pardoned by you, to be forgiven by you, and to have you accept me into your family, to adopt me, to make me your child. All right? The natural man doesn't get it. They don't understand. They're not stupid. Their thinking is just different. A supernatural work has to take place where the Spirit of God makes us alive. And when he does that, and of course we respond, our life has not only changed in that very moment, because the scriptures tell us that we are a new creation in Jesus, but then it will continue to change until the ultimate change takes place when we're with him forever. So let me just encourage you, stay focused on the fact that a person's real need is understanding that they have offended a holy God and that there are consequences to that. Serious, eternal consequences. But that same holy God that holds them to that standard fulfilled that standard in himself through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. One time I had a young person, and I'll close with this, but a young person come to me and say, you know, I've been talking to my friends and stuff about the Lord. I've been trying to be a good witness, but they don't believe the Bible. What, what, what can I tell them to convince them. I mean, I, I love them. I care about them. You know, what can I tell them? And I had to very carefully, hopefully somewhat gently, tell my teenager, right? I was a youth pastor at the time. Nothing. There's nothing else you can give them. If they reject God and his word, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith in whom? In Christ. If they reject that, there isn't anything else. And that's the problem that we have. Because in our minds, we're like, I, I just got to kind of hit them with this and show them how bad their life is or, you know, something. I, I got to maneuver. I got to know some, you know, just get that, get that way to present it in these different steps. I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, that we don't reason with them. Paul did that. I'm not saying that we don't relate their life to Scripture in some way. I'm not saying all that. I'm saying, ultimately, it's them and God. 
It's their sin and whether I want to keep it or not. And again, we're talking from the human perspective. So let's take the pressure off ourselves. Right? Let's understand who we're dealing with. Because I think when we do that, we can do it more effectively. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I will be very just transparent with you before these people. And yes, I'm leading them in prayer, but I, I really did not anticipate how practical some of the things that these conversations were going to bring out. As, as these friends are making these arguments and Job is arguing back, th this, is, this is real life. And, this is, and we've already talked about the fact, Lord, you've shown us that what the friends believed was really representative of any kind of religion, but not real faith. And so I thank you for revealing these things to us. I thank you, Lord, for what your word has uh, for us today and even as we continue to study. But in all of this, Lord, I pray that we will make some practical applications and then put it into practice. That we'll really ask ourselves, not necessarily what we believe as far as whether we trust in you or not or trust in your word, but, but on a practical basis, what is going through our minds as we're thinking about who you are? What is going through our minds as we're thinking about uh, how we interact with, with, with unsaved people? And even, even Christian friends. So Lord, guide us through this. Teach us. And again, I pray that your spirit would just, that we be obedient to him. And as, as he leans into us and, and, and impresses upon us some of these things, that, that we would submit to his authority. That we be obedient to what your word has to say. And we do thank you, Lord, that there, there is a, a sense of freedom in all of this. That things aren't up to us. So they have the freedom to just simply obey you and trust you for the outcome. Father, we have many people that we care about in our life. And I pray that that outcome would be that you would choose to call them into your family. And I also pray, Father, that we will live that faithful life that Job truly was in spite of what other people were saying to him. And Lord, we know, we know that this world is telling us right now um, righteousness is wrong. It's upside down. So Lord, give us endurance. In Christ's name, amen.